0: morning, I'd like you to join me in your Bibles in Exodus chapter 20. If you took all the people who fell asleep in church and laid them end to end, they would be more comfortable. Now I say that because I think there may be a tendency for you to get comfortable As we approach this sixth commandment, we see it in verse 13, you shall not murder. And you may be saying, I can skip this commandment because what does it have to do with me? In fact, you may be thinking this is an opportunity to catch up on the fourth commandment and get some rest today. So I want to preface this message by alerting you to the fact that this is a pertinent commandment. It is pertinent for our nation. We pride ourselves in being a civilized society. But when it comes to violence, we are barbarians. Among those aged 5 to 34 in our country, the second leading cause of death is murder. And number three is suicide. The number of violent deaths in America is 20 times that of Germany. It's 30 times that of Japan. It's a hundred times that of Israel. We are no longer the most violent nation on earth, but we're close. And that distinction now goes to Mexico and a couple of countries in South America. It is pertinent for our nation. It is also pertinent for our families. Moses said to teach these commandments to your children. Moses said to write them on the doorposts of your house. These are family values. You say, well, what does the sixth commandment have to do with family values? Where did the first murder take place? In the family, when Cain killed his brother. And that is still the pattern today. Most of the violence and most of the murders in our country happen between family members. When I say the word domestic blank, what do you think of? Domestic violence. In fact, I found a shocking statistic this week. The leading cause of death among pregnant women is murder. This commandment is pertinent for our nation, it's pertinent for our families, and it's pertinent for you as an individual. You say, well, Dan, I don't need this message. I'm not a professional hitman. I don't even own a gun. I'm not going to kill anybody. Well, maybe you won't murder anyone with your actions. But did you know that you can murder someone with your attitude? You don't just break this commandment when you commit homicide with your hands. You break this commandment when you commit homicide in your heart. So don't get comfortable. This commandment is for you. Now, the Sixth Commandment is real simple. It contains only four words. In fact, in the Hebrew, it contains only two words. It literally says, no murder. But as simple as this commandment is, it's often misunderstood and misused. And so before we talk about what it does mean, I want to look at what it doesn't mean. And I've listed five things that it doesn't mean. Number one, it's not prohibiting the killing of animals. And that's obvious in this same chapter because in verse 24, God tells the children of Israel to, keep, to kill sheep and oxen as sacrifices. The Bible makes a clear distinction between human life and animal life. In fact, some animals were created to be killed. In Genesis 9-3, God said, Everything that lives and moves will be food for you. Just as I gave you the green plants, I now give you everything. Let me tell you what that means. That means after church today, it's okay to take your pastor out for a steak. You don't have to be a vegetarian unless you want to. Now that's not to say it's okay to abuse animals or to kill someone else's animal. Leviticus 24.21 says whoever kills an animal must make restitution. There are consequences for killing someone's animal. You had to pay for it monetarily or replace the animal. But that's not what God is talking about in the sixth commandment. Second thing it doesn't mean is it's not prohibiting capital punishment. And that's clear in the very next chapter because in Exodus twenty-one twelve, God calls for the death penalty. In fact, in that same chapter alone, God commands capital punishment for seven different offenses. He established that principle early on in Genesis 9-6. He says, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. And in Leviticus twenty four, seventeen it's stated this way, if a man takes the life of any human being, he shall surely be put to death. And there we're given that familiar equation a life for a life. When someone asks, Are you for capital punishment? That's not a political question. It's a biblical question. And the answer is yes. In fact, the Bible has a lot to say about capital punishment. Let me give you four principles God gives us for capital punishment. Number one, God has given that authority to the government. We read that in Romans 13, 4. It says, the government is a minister of God to you for good, and it does not bear the sword for nothing, for it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. The government is God's minister The government is God's avenger to bring wrath on those who commit evil. And Paul says the government doesn't carry the sword for nothing. Doesn't carry the sword so that it'll simply look good. What is the sword? Sword has the power to kill. And God has given that authority to the government. Secondly, God intended for it to be just. And that's why in Deuteronomy 17.6 it says... No one shall be put to death on the testimony of only one witness. To ensure justice, God required a plurality of witnesses. You couldn't be put to death just because someone has a grudge against you and falsely accuses you of something. You couldn't be put to death on a he said, she said basis. There had to be a plurality of witnesses. And to further ensure justice the witnesses couldn't be passive. And I love this. Because in our country, you can go and pick someone out of a lineup behind a one-way window and go home and forget about it. But God didn't allow that. Because he says this in Deuteronomy 17, 7, the hands of the witnesses must be the first in putting him to death. Did you get that? You had to be so convinced that this guy was guilty that you had to be the first one to throw the stones in the execution. You see, God required justice. And then a third principle is that God intended it to be swift. In the Old Testament, when someone was condemned to death, they took him outside the city and they stoned him to death. It was swift. When President William McKinley was assassinated in 1901, His assassin was executed 53 days later. You think that could happen today? No way. With all the appeals, it it goes on and on and on, and by the time someone is executed, we forgot why. When Ted Bundy was finally executed for killing all of those innocent women, it was 11 years after the crimes. And that's low for average. The average amount of time is 18 years. 18 years from the time the crime is committed until that individual is executed. I don't think I'm doing anything, but, tell you what, let me, oh. I was gonna take my clothes off. (laughs) That wasn't a good option. Here. Good morning. Good morning. Can you hear me? You can't hear me? I can't hear myself. In fact, I was looking this up this week, and it surprised me that uh, under our criminal justice system, system, the average amount of time that an individual actually serves when they get a life sentence, a life sentence is eight years. Oliver Wendell Holmes said justice postponed is justice denied. And I think we're denying a lot of justice in our country today. One of the arguments I hear is that capital punishment doesn't deter criminals. And I always say, well, it deters the guy who gets executed. He's not going to commit any more crimes. Now, having said that, let me give you a fourth principle. And this one I really like. God allowed for exceptions. God allowed for exceptions. Cain didn't get the death penalty for killing Abel. David didn't get the death penalty for killing Uriah. Jesus intervened in John chapter 8 on behalf of a woman who deserved to be stoned to death. God allows for exceptions but the death penalty was the just punishment. And so the sixth commandment is not saying there should be no capital punishment. Thirdly, it's not prohibiting going to war. God sent Israel to war throughout the Old Testament. In fact, in Jeremiah 51:20, he calls them my war club. And later says, they are my weapon. war and on many occasions he commanded Israel to completely annihilate the enemy, to wipe them out completely. The sixth commandment is not a ban on war. God endorsed war. In Ecclesiastes 3.8 it says there is a time for war and a time for peace. In fact when Jesus comes back in Revelation 19.11, we're told that he will be riding on a white horse and waging war. God makes it clear, there are some things worth fighting for, and some things worth killing for, and some things worth dying for. Fourth thing, it's not. It's not prohibiting self-defense. Self-defense, that's clarified two chapters later in Exodus 22-2. It says, if a thief is caught breaking in and is struck so that he dies, the defender is not guilty of bloodshed. If an intruder comes into your house and threatens the safety of your family, it's not time to quote the Sixth Commandment. If someone breaks into your house and threatens your, your family, you're not to be a pacifist. You can defend yourself and your family. Now, maybe I shouldn't tell you this, but I don't own a gun. The reason is I've only shot a gun about three times in my life, and I fear that if I owned one, I would shoot the wrong person. But I am very good with a baseball bat. and I have several, (laughs) and I still think I have warning track power, so if someone breaks into my house, I will be pummeling them with my baseball bat. And God says if you do that, that person takes their life in their own hand when they break into your house, and you are not guilty if you even took their life. Fifth thing. It's not prohibiting accidental killing. This should be pretty obvious. The Bible makes a distinction between accidental killing and willful killing. In fact, in Numbers 35, God established cities of refuge in Israel so that if you accidentally killed someone, you were to flee to one of these cities and be justified for what you did. So this commandment is not prohibiting the killing of animals, capital punishment, war, Self defense or accidental killing. So, what does it mean? Let me give you five things that it includes. The first is rather obvious homicide. I only have to mention these events or places Fort Hood, Texas, the Boston Marathon. The campus of Virginia Tech University in Blacksburg, Virginia, Columbine High School, the Century Movie Theater in Aurora, Colorado, at the midnight screening of the Dark Knight Rises, Sandy Hook Elementary School. I only have to mention those places and we kind of cringe inside because it brings up images that are forever etched in our collective memories. But with a lesser degree of publicity, that same thing is happening on streets and in houses all across this country. It happened on more than one occasion in our city in the last week and a half. Gang involvement is up in the United States. In fact, I saw a news show interviewing three generations of gang members in the same gang. Grandpa, father, and son all in the same gang. Drive-by shootings are commonplace today. In fact, more kids die from violence in America than from illness. And I guess that really shouldn't surprise us because as I think about our kids today, I think they're being programmed to believe that human life has very little value. What are they being taught in our schools? That our existence is a result of inorganic matter plus time plus chance. That somewhere way back in your past, somebody, crawled out of a primordial puddle. We are being taught that we were once frogs. That you are a frog that turned into a prince. Now, if you tell that in nursery school, it's called a fairy tale. If you say that in the classroom, it's called science. So our children are being taught that they're an accident they are being taught that the only difference between them and a monkey is that they've been around longer. No wonder they devalue human life. Have you looked at the names of rock groups today? There's a whole category called death metal. It's described this way, the lyrics elaborate on the details of extreme acts including mutilation, dissection, torture, rape, and necrophilia. Here are the names of some of the groups. Carcass, decapitated, autopsy, obituary, disembowelment, suicide silence, suffocation, the entombed, and six feet under. By the time the average American child has hit sixth grade, They have already witnessed over 8,000 murders on television, and they have watched over 100,000 acts of violence. They are desensitized. John Wayne Gacy, Jeffrey Dahmers, Ted Bundy are all part of our national vocabulary. Twenty-four people Twenty-four Americans were killed in the Gulf War. During that same period of time in Dallas, Texas alone, 52 Americans were killed. Twenty-four in the Gulf War, 52 in Dallas, Texas. What's that tell us? It's safer to go to war than to walk the streets of our cities. Every 22 minutes, an American is stabbed, shot, beaten, or strangled to death. We break the Sixth Commandment by homicide. Second way we break it is by suicide. On average, there are 94 suicides a day in the United States. One person attempts suicide every 38 seconds. And surprisingly and sadly, more than a thousand suicides occur on college campuses every year. In fact, suicide is now the number two cause of death among college students. An Emory University study found that one out of every ten college students has a plan for suicide. I found seven suicides mentioned in the Bible. The most familiar King Saul and Judas Iscariot. Suicide is self-murder. You say, well, Dan, it's not murder because this is my life. And I can live it any way I want to. And I can take it if I want to. Well, no, you don't have that right. Romans 14.7 says, For not one of us lives for himself, and not one of us dies for himself. 1 Corinthians 6.19 says, You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. God gave you your life, and only he has the right to take it. In fact, the Bible tells us that the number of your days is predetermined by the Lord. Job 14.5 says, man's days are determined. You have decreed the number of his months and have set limits he cannot exceed. God has determined the number of days you will live, and you cannot exceed that, and you are not to short-circuit. Now, suicide usually happens at the deepest, darkest, bleakest time of life, but suicide is never an answer. It's a permanent solution to a temporary problem. And One of the questions I'm often asked is can you commit suicide and still go to heaven? Some would say no. Some people consider suicide the unpardonable sin, and since the person who commits suicide doesn't live to confess it, they die with unconfessed sin and therefore they go to hell. Well that's faulty logic. And more importantly, that's faulty theology. Remember what Paul said to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians chapter eleven and verse thirty? He said, because some of you are abusing the Lord's Supper, some are weak and some are sick, and a number sleep. What's he mean by that? God came down and took some of them out of the world. Did they confess their sin? No. If they'd confessed their sin, he wouldn't have had to take them. But he took them out of the world. Where did they go? Paul says they sleep. That's the term used for Christians when we die. So they went to heaven with unconfessed sin. You see, my going to heaven is not dependent on whether I confess every sin. My going to heaven is based on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross for me and my trust in him. And when I don't confess my sins, it affects my peace and my power and my influence and my testimony and my joy and my rewards, but it doesn't affect my salvation. Suicide is as forgivable as any other sin. But having said that, suicide is a violent offense against yourself and suicide is a violent offense against God who made you in his image, and who bought you with the blood of his son. And suicide is a violent offense against the survivors. In fact, it is the ultimate act of selfishness. Thirdly, this commandment includes euthanasia, or what's called mercy killing. Dr. Kavorkian made this popular. It's causing the death of someone because of deformity or because of age or because of an incurable disease. Now, I want to clarify here. I'm not talking about compassionate care for the dying. I'm not talking about unplugging some artificial means of life support. There's a big difference between mercy dying and mercy killing. Mercy killing or euthanasia is causing the death of someone else because either you or they have determined that their life is of no value. Job 12.10 says, in his hand is the life of every creature and the breath of all mankind. Only God has the right to determine when I stop living. There was a guy a number of years ago who thought he should have the right to determine who was fit to live and who wasn't. His name was Adolf Hitler. Fourth way we break this commandment is by abortion. Twenty-three percent of all pregnancies in America now end in abortion. That's almost one out of every four. And since 1973, when it was legalized in our country, 50 million Americans have been put to death through abortion. We have about a million and a quarter abortions a year in the United States. That's almost 3,000 times a day in America. An unborn child's life is taken in the womb of its mother. Ninety-seven percent of all the abortions are not because of rape, not because of incest, not because the life of the mother is threatened. They are simply because the mother decided it was inconvenient. And one of the questions that is raised on this issue is, when does life begin? Does it begin at conception or does it begin at birth? And again, that's not a political question. The Bible has the answer. Listen to what David said in Psalm 139. Thou didst form my inward parts. Thou didst weave me in my mother's womb. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. My frame was not hidden from thee when I was made in secret. Notice the pronouns David uses to describe himself in his mother's womb. I, me, my. He's not a blob of tissue. He's not an embryo. He's not a fetus. He is a person in the womb. You want a better verse? Luke 1.15 tells us that John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. A blob of tissue can't be filled with the Holy Spirit. He was a person in the womb of his mother. Abortion is not just a decision involving one person. It's a decision involving two persons. It's one person taking the life of another. In his medical school class, a professor posed this medical and ethical question to his students. He said, here's the family history. The father has syphilis and the mother has tuberculosis. They already have four children. The first is blind, the second has died, the third is deaf, and the fourth has TB. The mother is pregnant again. The parents come to you for advice. They are willing to have an abortion if you decide that they should. What do you say? And then he broke the class into groups to consult. And all the groups came back recommending abortion. And the professor said, congratulations. You just took the life of Beethoven. Why in our sophisticated educated society, where you would think that murder would be getting less and less and less, does it continue to increase? I would point to two things. Number one is the heart of man. The heart of man. It has not changed since Cain killed Abel. As Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. I would point to the heart of man, and secondly, I would point to the purpose of Satan because his purpose has not changed either, and his purpose is your death. Jesus said of Satan in John 8, 44, he was a murderer from the beginning. Satan does everything he can do to cause the death of people. In fact, if you take the word live and turn it around, it spells evil. If you take the word lived and turn it around, it spells the word devil. And I think that's fitting because Satan is antithetically opposed to life. And why does he hate life? Because he hates man. And why does he hate man? Because man is made in the image of God. And he tries to get to God, and since he can't get to God, he destroys people. And he's doing a very good job of it. People are killing each other. They're killing themselves. They're killing their unborn babies. They're killing devalued adults. And meanwhile, God is still saying, You shall not murder. Now, I know that some of you are sitting here this morning experiencing the guilt of murder. Maybe you've killed someone, maybe you've tried to kill yourself maybe you've had an abortion or you've talked someone else into an abortion I've got good news for you it's just as forgivable as any other sin did you know that most of the Bible is written by three murderers Moses David and Paul, all killed, at least one person. Which, to me, underlines the message of this book. It's a message of grace. It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter what you've done. What matters is who you know. And knowing Jesus Christ brings forgiving, forgiveness and cleansing from all our sins. Now, on the other hand, if you're sitting here and you're not feeling convicted, let me help you out with that. Look at Matthew chapter 5, and I want to give the last way that you can commit murder. And that's anger. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus quotes the Sixth Commandment. He says, you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder. And whoever commits murder shall be liable in the court. And then he expands it in verse 22, and he says, But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. Jesus says if you are angry with your brother, you are guilty. Guilty of what? Guilty of murder. Why? because you're wishing he was dead. Clarence Darrow once said, I've never killed anyone, but I've read an awful lot of obituaries with glee. Jesus is saying that in order to be guilty of murder, you don't have to shed blood. It can happen in your heart. John said it this way in 1 John 3.15, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. See, that's where murder is born. It happens a long time before the gun is fired. It happens a long time before the knife is swung. And then Jesus develops it further. Look at verse 22 again. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. That first word is an Aramaic word, raka. It means empty head. It would be equivalent today to numbskull, nitwit, idiot. The second word, fool. Is from the Greek word moros from which we get our word moron but when the Bible talks about a fool it's really not talking about a person's intellect it's talking about his character and his moral being because the Bible says the fool has said in his heart there is no God so what he's saying is you with your words attack this person's intellect and you attack this person's character. And I think what Jesus is saying is that when in deadly earnest I call someone by a derogatory name that indicates that they are a nobody I am guilty of murder. What do we typically do when we're angry? We open our mouth and we cut that person down or we slander that person. We use our tongue as a knife to attack them. There's a scene from Seinfeld where the characters are discussing the way high school guys torment each other and they're talking about the atomic wedgie And when Elaine expresses shock at their cruelty, they turn to her and say, well, what do girls do? And she answers, we just pick somebody and make fun of her until she develops an eating disorder. Well, that's the exact kind of thing that Jesus is talking about. It takes a split second to kill someone with a gun. It takes longer with words, but it's the same heart attitude. You say, well, how serious is Jesus about this? Look at verse 23. Right here in this context, Jesus says, therefore, if you're presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering before the altar, and go, first be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. If you're worshiping and you realize that you are harboring thoughts of anger toward your brother, or you have said words of contempt to your brother or about your brother, Jesus says, drop what you're doing. Even something as important as worship, drop what you're doing and go and first be reconciled to your brother. You know what that tells me? Reconciling your relationship with your brother takes precedence over worship. You know why that is? Because if you have this kind of relationship with your brother, you're not really worshiping anyway. What you are calling worship is feigned worship because you cannot worship with a knife in the back of your brother. You cannot worship God with a heart full of hatred for someone. And so God says, get real with your brother And then you'll be able to come back and get real with God. We're going to close by singing a song together to the Lord. And there may be some of you here who need to leave right now. And go and be reconciled in a relationship.